Welcome back to another episode of A Dark Tale, where you're reminded that evil could be anywhere. I'm Joe, your host. Thank you for listening. In recent weeks, I've gotten some pretty positive feedback on that last solo episode we released. So, with that being said, be on the lookout for more. This being one of them. James is still involved heavily behind the scenes, and I can promise you he will be making frequent recurrences. We both took some time to travel, to see friends and family, safely, of course. We wore masks, and you should too. So, it's been a hectic summer, but I'm glad to be back here with you, and if it's your first time listening, welcome. We hope you enjoy, and please... Scroll on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. It really does help our little show here. And as for your emails and case requests, we hear and appreciate those, every one of them. I try hard to reply to everyone that reaches out, but those that don't hear back, don't be discouraged because everything is taken into account. There's an ever-growing list of listener suggestions that we're diligently researching, reading, and working through, and trying to form episodes around. I promise. But for now, let's get into this week's episode. And then they stay down there till roughly about eight at night. I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, trying to figure out what the hell to do, you know? What the f- to do, you know? I start chopping up the body. Tonight, we're focused on the case of a unique serial predator. A sadistic man, bent on creating a race of sons to worship him and serve him. Kidnapping six women from the streets of Philadelphia, keeping them in his basement to endure physical, mental, and sexual torture, he would ultimately end the lives of two and leave the others permanently scarred. The old adage of truth is often stranger than fiction, is ever-present in tonight's tale. Indeed, it would go on to inspire a book and film that terrified audiences across the nation. When Thomas Harris introduced the world to Buffalo Bill in his 1988 novel-turned-Oscar-winning film, The Silence of the Lambs, few readers and audience members would know that the serial killer in the story was drawn from real life. Much of Buffalo Bill's M.O. were a compilation of infamous serial killers like Ed Gein, Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer, and, of course, Ted Bundy, 
as well as Edmund Kemper, who we discussed heavily on our debut episodes. One man is usually a little lesser known in the public eye. This is the man that inspired the infamous pit, or well, that was in Buffalo Bill's basement. But more on that later. Like I said, truth is often stranger than fiction. This is a dark tale, and this is the tale of Gary M. Heidnick. November 25th, 1986, was a brisk 50-degree day, but by the evening it had slipped into the low 30s. The melting snow on the streets of North Philadelphia would again freeze over, glazing the uneven cracked sidewalks with thick patches of ice. It wasn't particularly comfortable walking weather by late evening when 25-year-old Josefina Rivera had left her boyfriend's house, angry, after having a heated argument, one all too familiar to Josefina. Philadelphia, for those who don't know, is a city of neighborhoods, smaller neighborhoods within bigger neighborhoods, Kensington, Fishtown, Society Hill, Rittenhouse Square, and I can't forget Penn's Landing, one of many focal points of the city for fireworks, concerts, and festivals. 43-year-old Gary Heidnick liked to cruise the streets of North Philadelphia when he wasn't working as an LPN at Philadelphia General Hospital. Gary lived alone and was socially awkward, to say the least. Most neighbors said he was weird, but quiet. Gary was more or less a social outcast and had his needs and made practice of sometimes looking for sex workers. Money wasn't ever a problem for Gary Heidnick. Eye contact was, though. According to one interview, Heidnick had a tendency to, quote, look above you like he was trying to see what was behind you and seemed to have almost no emotion. As Josephina walked down 4th Street towards Gerard Avenue, a main thoroughfare, she left the quiet of the small street behind her and made her way to the corner of the main road. She decided she needed money and would get to work. Work consisted of finding a willing John and a certain exchange of favors for money, to put it nicely. But that also meant it could lead to a warm bed for the night with having to deal with her asshole boyfriend smacking her around. However, it was getting late, and the cars passing by seemed fewer and fewer as cold rain began to fall. Josephina was getting to the point of quitting, but she wanted to eat for Thanksgiving and only needed a few more dollars to afford a decent spread. The rain was starting to get heavier as a Cadillac Coupe de Ville pulled up to the curb. The window came down and a bearded man asked Josephina, You hustling? She said yes and they brokered a deal. She got in the car, grateful to be out of the rain, with the heat on full blast. Josephina introduced herself as Nicole. She never used her real name and loved the name Nicole anyway. The man, looking straight ahead as he drove, said his name was Gary 
and he was going to make a stop before doing the deed. The stop happened to be a McDonald's. Gary pulled into the parking lot, and the two of them went inside. Gary ordered himself a coffee. He didn't bother asking Josephina if she wanted anything, yet they sat in a booth while Gary sipped, and she studied her customer. He had black hair, slicked back by the rain with icy blue eyes, and a trimmed beard. He wore a blank look on his face and never made direct eye contact with Josephina. She didn't think much of it. Most of the guys she hustled came off as shy. Gary didn't talk much and Josephina was getting uncomfortable in the silence. So she asked him his name again. Sounding annoyed, he stated his full name. Gary Heidnick. And took another sip from his coffee. That's when she noticed his watch. It looked expensive, as did some other pieces of jewelry he wore. A ring and a gold chain. Josephina was confused because he had nice jewelry and a really nice car, but Gary himself looked... messy. His clothes looked cheap and dirty. They had... stains on them, and he didn't smell very good either. After a few more minutes of uncomfortable chit-chat and silence, Gary finished off his coffee and decided they were leaving. When Josephina asked where he wanted to do it, he told her they were going to his house. After pulling out of the McDonald's on Lehigh Avenue, Gary made a right onto 5th Street and continued north through the rain as it turned into sleet. The ride to 3520 North Marshall Street was quiet, but Josephina was happy to be warm and getting paid. At this point, the ends justify the means. Heidnick pulled into his driveway, a tiny front yard littered with old tires and random garbage. The row house had a small wooden porch out front. It, too, was covered with trash. The yard was fenced in with chain link. The windows and doors were covered with steel bars. They walked in the front door and Josephina immediately noticed Gary's extensive pornography collection stacked in various spots throughout the living room as well as the dining room. As the odd couple made their way upstairs, Josephina saw dollar bills in different denominations taped to the walls. Some parts were covered with thousands of pennies, an uneasiness that was always prevalent when Josephina was on the job had heightened, and she felt scared for the first time tonight. Still, though, she knew if she wanted to get her money, she had to fulfill her end of the bargain, so she followed Gary Heidnick into his bedroom. Josephina was doing what she felt she needed to do in order to feed herself. This wasn't something that she felt great about doing. In a 1991 interview, Josephina describes the moments leading into what would eventually become a five-month-long battle for her own survival. And afterwards, 
I was getting dressed and he came up behind me and started choking me. And, um, and he started choking me. But I, all I could remember was, I don't know, I guess it happened so fast, all I could remember was like a film projector of things that were going on in my life was like, you know, just flipping back. In case anyone missed that, Josephina says, quote, All I can remember is like a film projector flipping back all the images of my life. So basically, it goes like this. Gary and Josephina have sex. As Josephina has her back turned while getting dressed, Gary comes from behind and begins to choke her to the point where all she remembers is her life flashing before her eyes, before passing out. When she woke up, she was handcuffed and had muffler clamps around her ankles linked with a chain. For anyone who doesn't know what a muffler clamp is, don't feel bad. I had to Google it myself, and it turns out the name is pretty self-explanatory. A muffler clamp is basically a round, often flat, circular piece of steel that bolt together at each end. These were essentially makeshift shackles used to keep Josephina from barely moving her legs, let alone walk. Josephina woke up in Gary Heidnick's basement to him securing the homemade shackles to the bottom of her legs. As she began to struggle and scream, realizing what was happening, Heidnick said he wouldn't hurt Josephina if she kept quiet. The struggle continued, but Gary eventually was able to secure Josephina. She didn't know what to expect to happen next. She had no idea what Heidnick had planned for her, or as to why he had decided to take her captive. If he simply wanted to rob her, surely they would have parted ways hours ago, even if that meant she had to take a beating and would have been left behind in the cold. She thought, at this point, that might have been better. After the momentary struggle and her shackles were secured to Gary's satisfaction, he moved towards the center of the basement and lifted a big piece of plywood off the dirty floor. He moved back towards Josephina and grabbed her by the handcuffed wrist, dragging her across the filth in the basement as she screamed and hollered. He said to her sternly, Shut up! and pushed her into the hole in the floor. Josephina fell about two and a half feet and landed in the cold dirt on her side. She looked up to see her captor was sliding the piece of the wood back into place, covering the hole. She pleaded and begged with him not to, to let her go. Gary Heidnick looked at her blankly and said calmly, Just be quiet. As the darkness swallowed her, Josephina began pushing on the wood with her hands, still bound with the cuffs. She could barely move inside her subterranean prison cell and something heavy was keeping the wood in place. A moment passed and she heard footsteps moving up and down the stairs to the basement. Suddenly there was a loud sound of rock music coming from a radio. That's all she could hear from that point forward so she continued to scream in hopes that someone might hear something. Heidnick returned a short time later 
only to mercilessly beat Josephina because she was screaming, scared for her life. Can you imagine the fear? He kept trying to fit me in this hole, and he kept taking his board, and he kept slamming it on my head, you know, trying to get me to fit into this hole. So when I was in there, I was, like, all cramped up and stuff, and I'm trying to, you know, and I'm, like, still screaming and hollering because I couldn't breathe because I have asthma and stuff, and I'm, like, in all this dirt, and then, like, I couldn't, I didn't have any room to move and stuff. So he comes back downstairs, and he, like, pulls me out of the hole by my hair, and he has a stick, and he's just beating me with this stick. And then he puts me back in there. I was in there for a long, long time because I know I was in there at least 27 hours because of the times from the radio. Josefina Rivera would endure five months of physical and mental torture at the hands of Gary Heidnick. In that time, Heidnick would also groom Josefina in order to make her an accomplice in his future crimes. Josephina would be ultimately coerced into helping Heidnick do unthinkable things to the other women held captive out of her own understandable desperation to survive. I'm not going to go into as much detail with the rest of the victims as I did with Josephina simply for the sake of time. And frankly, I haven't been too detailed with what Heidnick has done to Josephina thus far. I will be highlighting certain points, of course, but honestly, it would be very, very repetitive. There were six women captive. Each of the women received the same treatment. Each victim in this story has a story of their own. I'm not trying to minimize anything, and no one victim is more important than the next. However, this story, as you'll come to find out, really begins and ends with Josefina Rivera. And in order to put everything into context with what she and the others went through, I thought it would be appropriate to tell the tale from her perspective as best as I could. Now, with all that being said, we have a little bit of the... We have a little bit of... Now, with all that being said... We also have a little bit of an idea of who Gary Heidnick is, and now we're going to get you a little bit of background on him, as well as what his overall master plan was. Because I can assure you, keeping women in his basement was only part of the game. Gary Heidnick had his sights set on much bigger things, including his own church. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943, to Michael and Ellen Heidnick, and was raised in the East Lake suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. He had a younger brother named Terry, and his parents would go on to divorce in 1946. The Heidnick children were then raised by their mother for only four years before being placed into the care of their father and his new wife. Gary would later claim that he was often emotionally abused by his father. He suffered a lifelong problem of bedwetting and claimed that, as a child, his father would humiliate him by forcing him to hang his stained sheets from the bedroom window just so his neighbors would see. As a result, 
other kids from the neighborhood would often tease him. Gary was also teased about his oddly shaped head, which he and Terry claimed was the result of a young Gary falling out of a tree at only six years old. Despite this deformity, Heidnick performed well academically and eventually tested at one point with an IQ of 148, although I don't know the exact age or time of the test. It's worth noting as well, his head would eventually grow to a normal size. He had many aspirations as he got older. One of them was to enroll at the very prestigious West Point Military Academy and eventually one day join the army, and the other to make as much money as humanly possible. With the encouragement of his father, 14-year-old Gary Heidnick left his public high school in the ninth grade and joined the Staunton Military Academy in Virginia. At the time, Staunton was a prestigious school with notable alumni such as the 1964 presidential candidate Barry Goldwater and former Nixon White House counsel and whistleblower John Dean. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. Eidnick had spent two years at Staunton before dropping out right before graduation and returning to public school. However, this too would be short-lived when Heidnick would again drop out of school at 17 and finally join the army. Heidnick served in the army for 13 months. During basic training, his drill sergeant graded him as excellent, though I'm not clear on what that exactly means. Following basic training, he applied for several specialist positions including the military police, but was rejected. He was sent to San Antonio, Texas to be trained as a medic and did well through medical training. However, Heidnick did not stay in San Antonio very long and was transferred to the 46th Army Surgical Hospital in Landstuhl, West Germany. Within weeks of his new posting in Germany, Gary earned his GED. In August, 1962, Heidnick began complaining of severe headaches, dizziness, blurred vision, as well as nausea. A hospital neurologist diagnosed Heidnick with gastroenteritis, but noted that he also displayed symptoms of mental illness. He was prescribed stelazine, which is effective for the short-term treatment of generalized non-psychotic anxiety. That following October, Heidnick was transferred to a military hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he was officially diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and he was honorably discharged from military service. From there on in, Gary bounced in and out of mental facilities all over the southeastern part of Pennsylvania for various disorders and multiple failed suicide attempts. Gary's mother had been suffering from bone cancer for quite some time and took her own life in 1970 by drinking mercuric chloride, which is highly toxic and, from what I've read, probably a very painful way to die. How she got this stuff, I don't know, 
but shortly thereafter, Gary made another attempt to take his life, and in total, Gary Heidnick tried and failed to end his life a total of 13 times. At a certain point, he believed that he had a purpose in life because he had been given 13 second chances, which is kind of optimistic in a weird way. Now, according to Gary Heidnick himself, he got in his car one day and drove until he came to the Pacific Ocean. If you're not keeping up from Philadelphia to the Pacific Ocean, is uh, it's a pretty long drive. And while out west, again, this is according to Heidnick himself, he heard the voice of God and had a vision. In this vision was a new church dedicated to God's infinite wisdom and knowledge, and Gary was chosen to fulfill the mission of spreading the good word. Determined as ever, he returned to Philly and got to work on the new church he was tasked with starting. Its name? The United Church of the Ministries of God. It was founded and incorporated in October 1971 with only five members and Gary Heidnick naming himself the head bishop. Heidnick was not only a bishop in a church he had started, he was also a landlord. Or at least, he tried to be. Gary had a friend named Tony Brown, who was either renting or trying to rent property from Gary. There was a disagreement that escalated to the point where Gary pulled a gun on Tony and fired at his face. But lucky for Tony, he was only grazed and escaped with his life that day. Gary was charged with aggravated assault and carrying an unlicensed pistol after the shooting, but served no time. The bishop, as Gary's followers referred to him, never stopped growing his church. He held weekly sermons at his house, open to whomever felt Gary was really preaching God's word. In 1978, the bishop was dating a woman named Anjanette Davidson. And Jeanette was mentally ill and illiterate. I point this out because it's a trend with Heidnick. He seeks out young, often vulnerable women across the board in the story. One day, in 1978, Heidnick went to see his girlfriend's sister, Alberta, who was living in a mental facility at the time. Heidnick signed her out on day leave and Alberta Davidson was brought to her sister's home where she was kept for 10 days and repeatedly raped, sodomized, and tortured by Gary Heidnick. When police finally found her, she was bloodied and terrified, hiding in a basement inside a coal bin. Heidnick was charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. But this original sentence was quickly overturned on appeal, and Heidnick spent only three years of his incarceration in mental institutions prior to being released in April of 1983 under the, quote, supervision of a state-sanctioned mental health program, which at the time was critically underfunded and understaffed. Now, I want to break for a second to amend something I mentioned earlier in the show. I mentioned before that after Gary Heidnick's mother Ellen had committed suicide, 
he would go on to commit 13 unsuccessful attempts. And while that is indeed the case, I wanted to just clarify the timing a little bit. Gary's mother dies in 1970, and there is a suicide attempt sometime after this. However, the rest of the suicide attempts are spread out over a longer period of time and not so much as a precursor to Gary starting the United Ministries of the Church of God. So from 1962 to around 1987, Gary spent the majority of his time in and out of psychiatric hospitals as a patient himself. Sorry for any confusion that may have caused. Now, moving forward. In the summer of 1983, way before the dating app-friendly world we live in today, when you couldn't just swipe right or digitally match with your soulmate via smartphone or tablet, people had to try and be smooth and charming in person, or in Gary Heidnick's case, through snail mail. For two years, Heidnick would woo a woman named Betty Disto from the Philippines via mail-order bride service. They corresponded by letter, exchanging whatever pleasantries they felt appropriate for the time, and as time went on, the two pen pals became closer. Obviously, Gary was leaving out some big details about his life. The letters would continue until one day there was a proposal. In 1985, Gary asked Betty to marry him, and she said yes. In September, Betty emigrated from the Philippines to the States, and the following month the couple was married in Maryland. The marriage, however, was doomed from the start. Gary was controlling and violently sexual with his new wife, and it wasn't long before Betty had realized the gravity of her situation. She found him in bed with other women on at least three occasions. After that, Heidnick forced his wife to watch while he had sex with other women. Betty accused him of repeatedly raping and assaulting her. Eventually, with the help of the Filipino community here in Philadelphia, she was able to leave him in January of 1986 and return to the Philippines. Shortly afterward, Heidnick was arrested and charged with assault, indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. Unknown to him, he had impregnated Betty during their short marriage. On September 15, 1986, she had given birth to a son. By this time, it is unknown, at least to me, how Gary's charges for the spousal rape and assault played out. I couldn't find a sentence he received either for jail time or more time in a psychiatric hospital. And because the timing of these charges are so relatively close to the kidnapping of Josefina Rivera, I found it odd that Gary Heidnick wasn't in some sort of state custody for the charges against him for what his ex-wife Betty alleged. If anyone knows anything more about this, please reach out. I'd appreciate it. Thanks. By 1986, the United Church of the Ministries of God was still growing. With over 50 dedicated followers, it was thriving and wealthy. Heidnick eventually amassed over $500,000, that's $1.3 million in 2020, and over $330,000 in stocks and assets, including a Rolls-Royce. Such a humble bishop.
By January 1987, Heidnik had kidnapped another four women, forcing Josefina Rivera to assist in multiple abductions. He held them captive in that pit in the basement of his house at 3520 North Marshall Street in North Philadelphia, blaring the radio while he repeatedly raped, beat, and tortured them. Josefina spent Thanksgiving in a hole, alone and scared. It would be three days before Gary brought 24-year-old Sandra Lindsay into the dark cellar as he grew his church and his harem. Two days before Christmas 1986, 19-year-old single mom Lisa Thomas has lunch with Gary Heidnick before coming back to his house and having some wine. The next thing she remembers is waking up, hearing loud music, and her arms and legs chained, like the two women she saw before her. Josefina and Sandra were forced to watch Gary rape Lisa before feeding the three women. Gary Heidnick would only let the women out to eat or come out of the pit as a reward for good behavior. And when he did feed them, they weren't getting a feast. Hell, they weren't even getting prison food. It was the occasional ham sandwich or just plain bread. Maybe a cup of black coffee. Normally just water. But most of the time, dog food was on the menu. Punishments included regular beatings, electrocution, starvation, and, of course, rape. To keep the women from hearing him coming and going, Heidnick forced a screwdriver into their ears, rupturing their eardrums. On New Year's Day, 1987, Deborah Dudley was brought into the basement. However, she was feisty and confrontational. She was a fighter. This forced Gary to make some changes and eventually some concessions, such as purchasing a portable toilet to keep in the pit, tampons, and allowing the girls to bathe every now and again. And this was all in an effort to keep the women quiet. At this point, Josefina Rivera has been in the basement now for just over a month. She realized that if she does what Gary tells her and doesn't give him any hard time, any rage or violence he exhibits, he does so on the other women. Somehow, Josefina learned through Heidnick's actions, the thing he really wanted was some sort of connection with someone. Josephina used this to her advantage. She would get the better share of any food they were given. She was allowed to sleep on the mattress on the floor rather than the hole. And she got to accompany Gary outside on his excursions for more victims. She was playing a game with Gary. She was doing as she was told. She wasn't putting up any fight. Eventually, Heidnick allowed her upstairs to cook for him, and they would watch movies together. 
before chaining her back into the basement, of course. It's safe to say that Josephina's state of mind after all that she had been through and seen up to this point has been shifted to survival mode, a twisted form of Stockholm Syndrome, if you will, where anything is acceptable if it's a means to her surviving this ordeal as long as possible. Anytime that you're cut off from the world outside, and, and whoever's holding you captive, the same person after a period of time, you're going to grow to like him. He's your only source of survival, and over a period of time, psychologically, you know this. You know, you know that this is the person that's got to bring you bread and water. And With the holidays passing and the new year approaching, the new year brought new victims. Deborah Dudley, I mentioned a minute ago, was kidnapped on New Year's Day, 1987. On January 18th, Gary kidnapped his youngest victim yet, 18-year-old Jacqueline Askins. Heidnick now had his harem of sex slaves, and in his mind, he was content. In his sick, demented world, all was well, as far as he was concerned. The church was successful, his money was right, and he had a basement full of women that would successfully breed a family of worshippers and carry on his church forever. All he had to do was keep them quiet to avoid being caught. There was only one problem for Gary Heidnick. Some of the prisoners weren't as content as Josefina Rivera. They weren't playing a mental chess game with Heidnick like she was. For women like Deborah Dudley and Sandra Lindsay, any chance they thought they had at escaping, they would take. In February, Sandra Lindsay was caught making her way out of the pit. As punishment, the scarred, beaten, and starved Sandra was hung by handcuffed wrists on a wooden beam in the basement and left unattended for over a week. When Gary Heidnick did return to Sandra, she was completely limp and stretched out from the beam. She probably died from a combination of the beatings she took, as well as starvation and dehydration. However, we can't know for sure, for a few reasons. Once Heidnick realized Sandra was dead, he brought her body upstairs. A dead body isn't an easy thing to move, especially up a flight of steps. He also may or may not have had help. Remember back to Gary's first run-in with the police when he had a rent issue with a friend, Tony Brown? The issue that led to a shooting at Tony's face, but only grazing him. Don't forget his name. It'll be important. Once Heidnick managed to get Sandra Lindsay's body to the main floor of the house, he dismembered her with a power saw. He then boiled her body parts and fed pieces of her to his dogs, as well as to the other captives in the cellar by mixing their remains with their food rations. He like untakes a chain off and stuff and 
you know, he takes her upstairs. He got Sandra's head cooking in a pot upstairs, right? And he got her ribs and stuff in a little roasting pan in the oven, you know, and her arms and stuff is in the freezer. And he says that if I don't cut out my bullshit, that I, this is going to be me. Neighbors complained about a rancid smell coming from the Heidnick house. Someone eventually called in a welfare check and police ended up on Gary's doorstep. When they questioned him about the nasty odor, he told them it, it was some food that he was cooking and had forgotten about in the oven, and it had burned and caused a small fire. He offered to let the officers come in and check everything out, but they brushed it off and let Gary go about his day. I mean, if he offers to let us in, there can't possibly be anything wrong here, right? Of course not. In March 1987, Deborah Dudley was also punished for something similar to what Sandra did. Misbehaving, according to Heidnick. Heidnick filled the pit with water. He told Josephina to pull wires out of an extension cord. He plugged in the extension cord and forced Deborah Dudley into the dirty water. Still chained, he then dictated to Josephina how long to keep the live wires in the water and on the chains, electrocuting Deborah. A few seconds, a minute. However long this torture by proxy went on is uncertain, but one thing is certain. Deborah Dudley, as hard as she fought, wouldn't survive. Gary Heidnick had now killed two women. This wasn't part of his plan at all. Things were getting messy. Josephina was forced to help Gary transport Deborah's body. He drove to a secluded area of the Pine Barrens in New Jersey and dumped it there. Back at home, Gary's harem was now two women short. He needed another woman to fill the vacancy. On March 23, 1987, Heidnick and Rivera abducted Agnes Adams. The next day, Josephina convinced Heidnick to let her go temporarily in order to visit family. Remember, Josephina was his favorite of the girls and trusted her somewhat. She convinced Heidnick to take her home to her family to say goodbye, playing into his idea that she was going to be with him forever. She told Gary she would bring another girl with her, so Heidnick eventually did as she requested. He took Rivera back into the city and parked at a gas station that was several blocks from her home. She cleverly told him not to pull up in front of the house in case family members identified the car. Heidnick told her she had 15 minutes. She shook her head and then walked calmly around the corner until she was out of sight and then ran to the nearest phone booth to call 911. As if by the grace of God, a squad car was nearby and she was able to flag down the officers and spit out her story and explain that if they allowed Heidnick to go home, the other girls in the house would be killed. After talking with Josephina and noticing the bruising on various parts of her body, you know, from the chains, 
they decided to look for the man she described. A white guy with black hair and a beard sitting in a Cadillac at a gas station around the corner, not doing anything particular. Sure enough, when officers rolled into the gas station, there he was. Gary was idly waiting for Josephina. He noticed the officers and played it cool initially. Then the lights came on and officers came out, guns drawn. There was no incident, and Gary Heidnick was taken into custody. They didn't know it yet, but for the surviving women in his basement, their nightmare was over. Police eventually uncovered the atrocities that took place in Heidnick's House of Horrors, and the media had a field day with names like those. But for the victims and their families, the pain is still felt. Josefina Rivera has been outspoken, doing some interviews and writing a book about her ordeal. But most of the other women choose to stay out of the spotlight. Two families will forever be affected by Gary Heidnick's madness in the basement. In addition to Gary Heidnick, his purported best friend, Cyril Brown, a.k.a. Tony, was also arrested. Brown was released not long after on $50,000 bail and an arrangement that he would testify against Heidnick. In addition, Brown admitted to witnessing Sandra Lindsay's death in the basement and Heidnick dismembering her. Whether or not he played a role in the torture or the murder of Sandra Lindsay is unclear. Shortly after his arrest in April 1987, Heidnick tried to kill himself again by hanging, but was unsuccessful due to guard intervention. Big surprise there. At Heidnick's arraignment, he claimed that the women were already in the house when he moved in. At trial, Heidnick was defended by Charles Peruto Jr., who attempted to prove that Heidnick was legally insane. Heidnick's insanity claim was successfully rebutted by the prosecution, led by Charles F. Gallagher III. The fact that he had amassed approximately $550,000 in the bank alone and brokerage accounts were littered with different assets, the fact that he had amassed approximately $550,000 in his bank account, as well as brokerage accounts, was used to argue that he was not insane. Testimony from his Merrill Lynch financial advisor, Robert Kirkpatrick, was also used to prove competence. Kirkpatrick called Heidnick an astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing. Gary Heidnick was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder on July 1, 1988, and sentenced to death and incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution at Pittsburgh. In January 1989, he attempted another suicide with an overdose of prescribed Thorazine. But guess what? Unsuccessful. In 1997, Heidnick's ex-wife Betty, surprisingly, filed suit in federal court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania seeking a stay of execution on the basis that Heidnick was not, in fact, competent to be executed. After a two-year legal proceeding in various courts, on July 3, 1999, 
the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of PA issued its final ruling clearing the way for Heidnik's execution. Heidnik was executed by lethal injection on July 6, 1999 at State Correctional Institution Rockview in Center County, Pennsylvania, and his body was cremated. As of 2020, he is the last person to be executed by the Commonwealth. He remains one of only three people to be executed in Pennsylvania since the reinstatement of the death penalty. The others were Keith Zettelmoyer in May 1995 and Leon Moser in August 1995. That about wraps it up for our tale this week. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed. If you'd like to make a case suggestion, maybe something local to where you live, you can go to adarktale.com and go to the contact page. It's all laid out for you there. Also, while you're there, our entire catalog is available for you to enjoy totally ad-free at no charge, of course. But in order to keep that going, we do ask that you also hop over to the support page and hit that donate button. Whatever you donate, whoever you are, you will get a special executive producer credit at the end of each new show, and it will be first come, first serve. So don't all come running at once. Just kidding. All jokes aside, any donation is appreciated to keep the overhead cost of the show as low as possible and still get great quality content. So thank you in advance. And you will get that credit. I wasn't kidding about that. Listen for your names at the end of future episodes. And if you want to get in touch with me online, my Twitter handle is at Joe underscore the host, or you can get me at a dark tale pod as well as Instagram. Any emails you want to send, again, adarktale.com and go to the contact page. Until next time, stay safe because evil could be anywhere, including your smelly next door neighbor. Take it easy, guys.